I want to give you a message today. I want to bring a message today that, frankly, I think really is speaking to us about the day in which we live. And that is, and the title of my message is this, give your best to reap your best. You got to give your best to reap your best. And some people might already straight away go, wait a minute, best? What are you talking about? Like, you know, are you saying that I'm going to be better, that I can be better than somebody else? No, no. I'm just saying give your best to reap your best. Amen? Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. I love this scripture, verse 19, actually. If we have it, it goes, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. And I think we have the King James Version as well. Is it, no, the New American Standard Version. Look at this. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. Here's the thought. God wants you to receive the best of the land. He wants you to have that. But the key to it is if you are willing and obedient. When our kids were younger, I remember saying, hey, Josh, put out the trash. And Josh would go, all right, Dad, next commercial. Um, Alyssa, Sam, whoever, pick any child. I just love picking on Josh. And, uh, but they would, they would always be willing, but they never really got around to the obedient side. So I had to help them with the obedient side. Sometimes children are willing, or rather they are obedient, but they're not willing. Oh, all right. And I don't know what annoys me more because I'm thinking neither one, you need both working in your life to eat the best of the lamb. It's not just a willingness, there's got an obedience. It's not like, okay, too many Christians live on someday I'll. Someday I'll start get working on my marriage. Someday I'll try to be kinder. Someday I'll try and get a better job. And we live there, but the Bible says, if you are willing and you're obedient, you'll eat the best of the lamb. So I'm thinking about me in the last two years, I've always been fairly active. Anybody who knows me knows I like being outdoors. I like fishing, scuba diving. I like hunting. I like golfing. I like shooting guns. I like uh, riding motorcycles. I like playing golf. The only thing they all have in common is outside. I, I don't like being inside. I feel trapped if I'm inside for too long. I, my whole life is planned about what I'm going to do next somewhere. You got it? That's me. That's, that for me is my best. But I realized that along life's journey, I needed to be more intentional about being healthy, about being fit. No, I mean, I'm healthy, but I want to be strong. And I'm looking, I'm, I was at 58, and I went, you know, when I'm 60, I want to make sure I can run around, chase my grandchildren. I want to make sure I can pick them up. I want to make sure I can go out in the backyard and, and mix it up with them. So two years ago, I decided that not only will they now have a good control of my food and what I eat, but I also will now intentionally work out. I've been doing it four days a week for the last two years. I have gym trainers that come up to me all the time and say, I want to train you. I go, leave me alone. I don't want a trainer. I know how to train. I know I don't want to look like you. I don't want to be this big jack guy. All I'm doing is fighting age. All I'm trying to do is be strong and be healthy. Praise the Lord. The only problem, I don't know when my legs will ever feel better, but for two years, my legs have been hurting me for two years. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. I don't think I am. Praise the Lord. But I do know this. If I'm going to get the best out of life, I've got to give the best. 
And so for me, going to the gym now is as important as eating food. It's not even negotiable for me anymore. Why? Because I want the best health. And if I'm gonna have my best health, I've gotta sow into that. Can you say amen? I think about my finances and Cheryl I, several years ago, set out some goals of where we would like to be um, at the age of 65 and where we would be able to, in our lives, to be able to think about what life would look like at the age of 65. We still got five years to go. We're on the journey and I wanna have a healthy financial situation. And I wanna tell you, you gotta give your best to reap the best. Can anybody say amen? And so I've got to sow my best if I want to reap financial blessing. Can you say amen? I want a good marriage. Today, we celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. I think for the most part, Cheryl, I've been 40 years. I think we've been happily married, probably 38 of those years. Would you agree, darling? I think there may have been a couple of days and a couple of weeks that maybe over 40 years, you might expand that out and say, there's been a couple of challenging seasons. I mean, if you're married to me, let me tell you something, you need a medal. And I'm just saying, that's the truth. But we wanna have a great marriage and we do have a great marriage. But if you're gonna actually have a great marriage, listen to this, you gotta sow into a great marriage. Amen? That means you come home. You don't just stay out with the boys. It means you communicate with your spouse. Amen? It means you are there. You are active. You are talking about your finances together. You're not just abandoning that to one person and then you not taking any regard or responsibility or adding any faith to it and you are stewarding together that marriage in Jesus' name. Can anybody say amen? I want to have good spiritual health. How do I have the best spiritual health? Well, that's by making sure I'm in God's house. Amen? I want to make sure that I'm in prayer. I want to make sure that I'm in the Word. So if I'm going to have the best spiritual health, I got to make sure that I'm giving my best to God when it comes to His house. I want to, give, you know, have the best job. I'm not sure about my job is better than your job, but I want actually to have the best job. So I've got to give my best at my job if I'm going to reap my best. I'm not going to work with an attitude. I want to have the best friends. Amen. Anybody? So you've got to be a good friend. The Bible says, he who wants friends must show himself to be friendly. Some of us want the best in life but we're not willing and obedient. And we've got to be willing to sow our best if we're going to reap the best. Am I talking to anybody? Listen, write this down. Your life today is a result of what you've sowed in the past. I want you to think about it. Whatever it is that you're experiencing in life today, this may be a little hard for some people, but whatever it is that you've seen that's happening in your life today, and I already hear some people going, wait a minute, wait, some things happen to me that have nothing to do with what I've sowed. Well, I want to get there. I want to show you something in the scripture that'll help you understand what this looks like. You see, I believe your life today is a result of what you've sowed in the past. You smoke as much as you want, all right, okay, you can smoke. Will you go to heaven? Yep, you'll get there before the rest of us. <laughs> All right? But don't be surprised when sickness turns up in your lungs. Can you say amen? And whatever it is that you are sowing into your life, you will reap that. You can eat as much food as you want and give <clears throat> no regard to your health and your well-being. Sure, 
and there's no immediate consequence to it, but over time, it will catch up with you. Because whatever you sow, you shall reap. Now that's good news and that's bad news. Good news if you're sowing the right things. Not such good news if you're sowing the wrong things. I wanna show you what Jesus said about this. I wanna show you this comment about your life today is a result of the things you've sown in the past. Watch this now. Luke chapter six, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, everybody say good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. Watch this, will be poured into your lap. Do you see it? Give and it will be given unto you. How will it be given to you? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Jesus is deliberately adding words to show you the magnitude that if you are somebody who sows, you are somebody who gives, then it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. Now watch what he says. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I want you to, it's not the measure that other people use towards you that determines what you reap. It's the measure you use that'll determine what's gonna come back to you. Come on, somebody. And it's the measure that I use. So sometimes I see things happen to me in life and I go, well, I just know this. I didn't sow that. That's not a harvest that I'm reaping from something I've sown. And all I can do is make sure that I stay on the right side of this equation. And when I see good things coming to me, I'm not surprised. I expect it because the Bible says, give and it will be given unto you. Come on, turn to someone and say, he's preaching good right now. Here's the second thought I wanna give you today is God thinks generationally. Listen to this, God thinks generationally. Listen to what Jesus said. In Matthew 22, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not the God of the dead, but the living. When God identifies himself throughout scripture, he'll often refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, when God looks at you, he sees your grandchildren. And if God thinks generationally, and the Bible says that we are supposed to have the mind of Christ, then I think we need to think generationally. That we need to think not just about us, but our children and our children's children. Matter of fact, listen to Proverbs 13, verse 22. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. When God looks at you, he sees your grandchildren. Very quiet in here. Come on, somebody say amen. Listen to Isaiah 46, verse 10. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. Listen to what God's saying here. I, listen to this, I made known the end from the beginning. Why is that? Because God is Alpha and He's an Omega. He is in your future waiting for you to catch up. Did you know the Bible says that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world? Before God ever said, let there be light, 
that God had already had a conversation with his son and said, son, before we start this whole thing, I need to know, are you willing to go to the cross and die for mankind? Before he started any of it, there was a conversation in heaven. Come on, somebody say amen. God knows he starts and he declares the end before the beginning ever starts. So if ever you are fretting about what's going on in your life and your family, can I tell you something? God's in control. He is absolutely, completely in control. And you can't afford to lose confidence or hope in what God does. Even if you mess up, this is the part I love. David deserved way less than what God gave him. But because David had a heart after God, we're going to show you a prayer he prayed later. And let me tell you something. It's all because God made Abraham a promise that I will bless you and I will bless the seed that comes after you. And I love Abraham. Abraham was rich enough and blessed enough and wealthy enough because God blessed him. He said, I will make your name great and you, I will bless you to be a blessing that he could take care of Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson. He was able to take care of Ishmael, who was his illegitimate son, which is what gave birth to what we know now known as Palestine, by the way. If you didn't know that, that's where that whole thing goes back to. And we see that Abraham, listen to this, was an incredibly successful man. I love that promise when God said, listen, if your seed will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, your seed, your offspring will be more numerous than the sand on the beach. And every time Abraham went outside, he looked up and he saw the promise of God. When God said to Abraham, get a bull and cut the bull. I love that. God says, cut the bull. I thought that was funny myself. And he split it in two. And then one side of the carcass is over here and the other side, the carcass is over there. And God said, now, Abraham, you walk through the middle of the carcass. That carcass represents a sacrifice and it's a promise. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And this covenant I'm making with you today, I will bless you and I will make your name great. Your name great. And when I look at you, I see Isaac, I see Jacob and I see descendants. And later in life, come along came David and David, David reminds God of the promise he made to Abraham. And David, God looked after David's children's children, even when his kids didn't deserve it because God made a promise. Abraham, I'm going to set up your seed. David, because you want to build me a house, I will build you a house. I will take care of you and your children. Anybody thank God that God thinks generationally? I love this thought, Psalm 145, verse nine. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you. Lord, your faithful people extol you. They will tell of your glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. So all the people might know your mighty acts and your glorious splendor of your kingdom. Watch this. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures, watch this, through all generations. Why are so many Christians fretting over what's happening in the world today? 
Why are we freaking out? Why do we think that it's coming to an end? Why do we have all these doomsayers out there and people writing books that the Antichrist is on his way and there'll be persecution and tribulation? The Bible does say that. But let me tell you, it does not promise. It says that we can't live at a rapture bus stop and just waiting for all bad things to happen. His kingdom is an enduring kingdom. Come on, somebody. And Jesus said, occupy until I come. Why do Christians get weird? When we read the Bible, look at it. Endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and he's faithful in all that he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up those who are bowed down. Can I tell you, if God thinks generationally, we should think generationally. We should be thinking about our children and our children's children. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I won't know if you're a good man until I've seen your grandkids. Come on, somebody. And I want to encourage you, let's think like that. Let's not just live for the moment. Everybody in the military and you're thinking, well, I'm just here for a few years and then I don't know where I'll be. Can I encourage you? If you're thinking generationally and you're thinking about the children's children, not not even just your children, but the people of the world, ask of me, says the Lord, and I'll give you nations. If you're just making life about you and your comfort, you're going to miss all that God has for you. If you want to reap the best, you got to sow your best. Here's the next thing we got to do. Just think about in this culture we're living in. We've got to learn to think past lunch. Look at Genesis 25. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau, the brother, came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the stew, for I'm exhausted. And the Bible says, Jacob said, Sell me first your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is my birthright to me? So Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau the bread and the lentil stew and he ate and he drank and he rose and went away. And Esau, watch this, despised his birthright. Now, I don't know how to describe Esau and Jacob to you. They're brothers. They came from the same mother and father, but they are so different. How many of those siblings can be different? Oh, they're so different. You see, Esau, well, Esau's a man's man. Esau, the Bible said, smelled like the outdoors. The Bible says Esau was hairy. He was masculine. He was the hunter. When he went out to bring home the food to feed the family, that's Esau. He's got the bow. He's got the arrow. He's stalking. He's hunting. He's manly. He's that guy. He's outside. He's a hunter. Now, I don't know how to describe Jacob to you, but Jacob is not Esau. Jacob is a bit of a mummy's boy. Jacob moisturizes. (laughs) Jacob is in the kitchen learning how to cook. Have you got it? Both good brothers. And Jacob realizes that Esau, the firstborn son, has the birthright, which is the blessing of God, the firstborn son in all of Israel's history and Jewish history, gets a little more of an inheritance than anyone else in the family. Why? Because the firstborn son is tasked with the responsibility of taking care of the family when the parents aren't there. So more is given. It's a birthright. It's a blessing that comes from the father that's passed on to the firstborn. And in this moment, 
Esau said, if you don't give me something to eat, I'm going to die. Isn't it amazing how we can exaggerate how bad things are? Because mum's inside. Mum will give him a meal. But in that moment of smelling the stew, in that moment of just wanting immediate gratification, he couldn't think past lunch. He couldn't think past his next meal. And the Bible says he gave his birthright. And if you read about this story in Hebrews, the Bible says that Esau was considered to be worse than an infidel because he couldn't think past lunch. All he could think about was his immediate gratification. I want to say we learn from this story we shouldn't be impulsive. Amen? We learn from the story that we shouldn't be ruled by our feelings. Can anybody say amen? We, we learn from the story that we have to guard against tiredness and exhaustion that will get us to make decisions that completely could ruin our lives. Matter of fact, I think one of the things I learned is I learned I can't afford to give in to instant gratification. Come on, somebody. I think one of the most powerful things I learned in this story is this, that I cannot, under, I cannot underestimate the impact of my decisions. I've got to think about the long game. I got to think about what I want my life to look like in the future. Can anybody say amen? I think the greatest thing I've learned from this story is I have got to value what I have now. Did you hear me? Esau said, what good is it to me if I die? And I want to encourage you, you got to value your health now. you got to value what you have now. And don't be always looking somewhere else, wanting something from somewhere else when you can't appreciate what's right in front of you. Come on, turn to your spouse and say, you look good today, sweetie. Come on. And here's the fourth thing, and I want to close with this. And this is probably the major point I want to make. How many actually believe prayer changes things? I do. I have seen prayer majorly change things. Did this thought ever occur to you? That your prayer, listen to this, could actually change the mind of God. Do you ever think about that? That your prayer, God's thinking and saying this, but as a result of your conversation with the Lord, that God could change his mind. Is that even a possibility? Some of you don't know. Some of you are going, I'm looking forward to hearing the answer, Pastor. Let me show you a couple of really good instances in the Bible. Exodus 32, verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked. Leave me alone now, so that my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them. This is God speaking. And then I will take, make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people who you brought out of Egypt with your great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was an evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains or to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Watch what he says. Watch. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you hear it? 
Remember the promise you made to Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and give your descendants and all this land that I promised to them. It will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring the disaster that he threatened. Can I tell you? I wanna give it to you one more time. Psalm 2 verse eight. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. Church, I want us as a church to be thinking generationally. I want us to be thinking about this world. I want us to be thinking about children and children's children. I want to make sure that we're not just living a microscopic, live for me, see me, notice me. That's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? I want to make sure we're living for our city. I want to make sure we're living for our nation. I want to make sure that we're thinking like God thinks and we are thinking generationally. I want to make sure we're praying big and bold prayers that literally can even change the mind of God. Can somebody say amen? Look at this one. This one's really cool. This is Genesis 18. This is the story of Abraham. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I, the Lord, will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it for me to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked and treating the righteous along with the wicked alike. Far be it for me, and I will not judge of all the earth and do what is right. So the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I'll spare it. So Abraham goes, okay, God, So if there's 50, what about if there's only 45? Would you spare 45 if you could find only 45 righteous people? Would you spare these people? And God says, Abraham, because it's you, I'll spare 45. He goes, God, I don't want to push my my luck, but what if there was only 40? And God goes, okay, if there's only 40 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll spare it. He goes, hey, God, 30. He goes, okay, 30. Hey, God, 20. All right, Abraham, 20. Hey, God. 10. What if there's just 10 righteous people? Can I tell you something? I want us to make sure we're praying big prayers. I want us to make sure that we're actually thinking generationally. I want to make sure that we've got a global mindset. Listen to how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Amen. Not my Father, not your Father, our Father. Amen. Not an American God but a global God. Ask of me, says the Lord, and I will give you the nations. Come on, somebody. (laughs) What about this one? This is probably one of the most powerful prayers that actually I never hear preached on. I don't know that I've actually heard maybe one sermon that I've ever heard this psalm preached on. Psalm 51. It's a psalm of David praying for God's forgiveness for his sin. If you don't know what his sin was, he committed adultery and he committed murder. And he tried to cover up the murder and married the woman he committed adultery with because she fell pregnant. And when the husband was more faithful to David than he was to even being with his own wife, then David had to have him killed 
and David tried to come off as being the really good guy. And obviously, everyone would think, well, it was her husband that got her pregnant. When in actual fact, it was David. And he had him murdered on a battle scene. And David would come across, what a good king, marrying this woman. The truth is, he got her pregnant. Truth is, he brought her in. He tried to cover it up, and a prophet confronted him. And this is how David responds. Watch this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Watch what David says. For I know my transgressions, my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you. And only you have I sinned. <clears throat> and what I have done is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and are justified when you judge. So, <clears throat> surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Look what David says. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than the snow. I want you to notice what David's doing. He's owning it. Against you and only you, God, have I sinned. You are right to judge me. I am a transgressor. He, I've discovered so many people, when they give in to sin, blame somebody else. But David is owning this. He's been confronted with his humanity and he's going, God, please cleanse me with hyssop, wash me, and I know I will be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, let the listen to this, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. I love this. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Do you know what David's saying? God, I messed up. God, I screwed up. God, I own this. And God, I'm asking you, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Restore him, remove not your spirit from me. God, I am a sinner. And he's going, God, help me to never make that ever again. Christians, let me tell you something. When you ask God for forgiveness of your sins and you own it, one of the most powerful things you can do is go, God, I don't wanna do that again. And the evidence of repentance is a transformed life. It's not that we don't make mistakes. It's not that we don't mess up. But I love the prayer of David because the Bible says, even though David was a murderer and an adulterer, the Bible says at the end of David's life, he served his generation by the will of God and then he fell asleep. David said, Lord, when I'm old and gray, please, whatever happens, don't let me go until I've declared your power to another generation. Lord, I thank you that you are with me and I thank you that you will restore to me. Watch, in the Old Testament, the joy of my salvation. David knew something about salvation that we only discover in the New Testament. That was the depth of David. Come on, somebody should get excited. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore unto me. Now watch what he says. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed of God. 
You cry, it says, you are God, my savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice. That's what some people want to do. They want to give a sacrifice for their sin, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. David's going, there's no amount of money that's going to buy forgiveness here. Come on, there's no sacrifice, there's no offering. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken heart, and God, that you will not despise. Can I tell you something? We gotta learn to pray powerful prayers. We gotta learn to be thinking about, come on, the nations and about our own lives. We have gotta know what it is to pray. I think of David... Oh, there's so many prayers here. I don't have time to list them all. Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance and healing. A godly king who couldn't see his nation conquered and be destroyed by the Assyrian army. Or what about when Daniel in the lion's den just stood there and prayed and God spared his life from the lions? Or what about Nehemiah when he said, I want you to pray that we could rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we can get the favor of the king? What about Esther? who risked her own life. And she said, I'm praying, God, would you spare me so I could speak to the king on behalf of the Israelite people. Isn't it amazing? In the Bible, and here we are today, still talking about Israel with all this drama. Do you think there's something going on spiritually? Let me tell you, it's not just cultural. Let me tell you, it's not just political. Let me tell you, it is evil at work in the world today. And there are forces of light and there are forces of darkness and God is on the throne and we need to understand his kingdom is an enduring kingdom. Come on, somebody give God some praise. First Chronicles 13 and verse 13. The ark of God remained in the family of Obadidim's house for three months and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. When we learn to pray, prayers that can move God, when we learn to think past lunch, when we learn to think generationally, come on, am I, am I talking to somebody here? When we begin to really give our best, we will reap the best. And I want us as a church to really make sure that we stay on the intentional side of life. And the Bible says that when David left, you know, who's ever seen the movie um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Steven Spielberg? It's a great movie, it really is. It's a phenomenon, it's one of my favorites. And it's, it tells the story about the Ark of the Covenant. It's a little jacked up with Hollywood, but it has a good story. And so um, in the Bible, it talks about this Ark of the Covenant that was literally the place where God resided in the Old Testament in the Holy of Holies in a box. And when David left the Ark of the Covenant at Obadidim's house for three months, Everything that Obadidim had was blessed. Everything, everything he had. Let me tell you, if you read this in its truest sense, it implies that his children were more blessed than ever. He was more fertile than ever. His soil <coughs> brought out the best crops and harvests he'd ever seen. Everything. His livestock had the best calves and cows. Everything that was in the house of Obadidim 
was blessed. And when David heard that, he said, we've got to get this into Jerusalem, which is actually today, it's the Ark of the Covenant sits underneath the Dome of the Rock, which makes no sense to me whatsoever, but that's where it is. And David wanted to bring the blessing of God, not just from Obedim, he wanted all of Israel to have the blessing of God. Here's my question for us. Will we be people who don't just have the ark in our house? Will we be people that pay, pray big enough prayers to bring God's presence to the earth? Will we be people who think and pray prayers that could change the mind of God? When was the last time you prayed for your children? When was the last time you prayed for your children's children? When was the last time, I want to think of it, we prayed for this world. We can live in such a microscopic me, me, see me, notice me, think about me, I need help. We can be ruled by what our doctors say. We can rule by what the media says. I was with some friends recently and we were just hanging out together and we took them somewhere and they said, we didn't think it would be safe to walk these streets. And their life was limited because a, a perception they had of a city that was so negative and dangerous. And they said, who would have thought at 10 o'clock in the night, we could be walking in these streets in this city and be safe. Can I tell you, they were living diminished lives, missing out because they're in a sound bubble. Can I tell you, church, the earth is the Lord's. Jesus said, occupy until I come. I want us as a church to pray big prayers. Can we pray for Africa? To think in the 50 years that have gone by in the world history, last 50 years, there is a major humanitarian, biggest world humanitarian disaster in the world happening right now in Africa. I want to do something about it. Who's with me? Come on. Who's with me? I think about what we're doing on our youth. I love to hear the Bible studies that our youth, young, young people are having in schools. I want to resource that. You know what we're going to do next year? We're going to invest into our young people. We've got a discipleship program that we've committed to. One of my major focuses for legacy next year is training up all of our young people and all of our high schoolers. We're gonna put them through a discipleship program from the age of 12 to the age of 18. The curriculum's already pre-written, pre-done, and we're gonna put them on a training program. Do you know what I'm gonna do next year? I'm gonna do once a quarter, I'm gonna be having parent nights and family nights where we wanna actually bring you up to date with what's going on in the world today and the culture of the world and empower you to raise up your children with godly values. There's a lot I wanna do for our children and our children's church. Come on, if you receive it, give the Lord a hand. I'm burdened. I'm burdened for the generations. I'm thinking about this. Ask of me, says the Lord, and I will give you the nations. I'm 60. I'm not old. Somebody say amen. I'm 60. I'm not old. But David said, Lord, when I'm old and gray, 
Don't let me go until I declared your power to the next generation. Church, I want us to be thinking about the generations to come. Can you say amen? Can you say amen? I want you to look at me right now. Got to think past lunch. We got to pray prayers that can change the mind of God. We got to give our best to reap our best. Amen. And we got to think generationally.